up, Sassnacks? It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm discussing the fourth episode of Men in Kilts, Witchcraft and Superstition. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander seasons seven and eight, Blood of My Blood, the second season of Men in Kilts, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of the fourth episode of season one of Men in Kilts, Witchcraft and Superstition. excited about this episode primarily because the country of Scotland is so steeped in lore and superstition that there are so many stories and I don't see how Sam and Graham possibly narrowed it down. I feel like they gave us a pretty good cliff notes of a lot of the major players in the superstition game, but there's so many ghost stories, so many legends and myths and you know, what have you that we could really make an entire series just based on the folklore and superstition of Scotland and primarily the Scottish Highlands, if we're being honest. Today, we're going to start out talking about Macbeth. And admittedly, I have not ever seen Macbeth or read Macbeth. And I know that's like sacrilege for some people. And it is on my list to see it or watch it or read it. One of those options at some point, but I just, it's one of those things that I'm always like, yeah, I'm going to do that this year. And then it gets kicked to the back burner again. So everything that I say today is just based off of what I've read about it in the Cliff Notes versions or in Clan Lands or seen on Men in Kilts. So please don't judge me. But we're going to talk about Macbeth a little bit because I feel like this is one of the crown jewels of the Scottish culture and it's also focused on Scotland. It's one of the few Shakespearean plays that actually takes place in the north and it's somewhat based on a true story. Macbeth was a real person, but of course I have a feeling that the superstitious element of it and all the witches and the descent into madness and all of that is built up for theatrical effect, if you will. Graham and Sam actually have a history with Macbeth. Being Scottish actors, I think it's kind of their bucket list item to be in that play. And actually one of the superstitions around it is that you're not actually supposed to say Macbeth. So sorry if I bring any bad juju there. (laughs) Graham has actually been in Macbeth three separate times, twice as Banquo. And he tells a story in Clanlands about this stint that he did in Macbeth at the Dundee Repertory Theater. He actually talks about this really cool effect that they did where Banquo's ghost appears and they actually had him press up against this piece of scrim, which is like this see-through, really thin cloth. They stretched it across the back of the set and then Graham would press his face and his body against the cloth. And then with a few lighting tricks, they actually managed to distort it. And he said, it was actually quite terrifying. And I'm kind of curious, like I would 
wish I could find a video or something of that because I guess it's one of those theater tricks that's actually pretty commonly done nowadays, but this was back probably in the 80s or 90s when this was first coming about. In that same production, this is really sad, one of the children playing one of the three witches was actually killed in a car accident on their way to do one of the shows. And that is kind of just one of the many stories that feeds into the bad luck moniker of Macbeth. It's like the curse of Macbeth. Sam has been in Macbeth once. I don't have it written down which role he played, but he has been in Macbeth before. And I think it is one of those like life goals of theirs to actually play Macbeth. And I know Sam wants to get back to doing theater. So I think that would be really cool. Maybe I could go see him as Macbeth because we know Outlander's coming to an end. Sad face. So as part of their Macbeth area of Clanlands, they actually visited Cawdor Castle, which is one of the big locations. Like I said, haven't actually watched Macbeth or read it, so I'm not sure exactly what the importance of this is, but they were very excited to go there. One of the things that really stuck out to me that they saw was a second edition of Shakespeare's folio of plays, and I nerded out over this because I am actually a collector of old books. I guess it was published in 1632 and the last one that was on the market sold for over $178,000 and he was talking about how it was just in pristine condition and I can just imagine like he looks at it reverently and he's like can I hold it and I would have done the exact same thing sure I will put on the white gloves whatever you ask of me just please can I hold it It actually takes me back to when I found my crown jewel, which is a 19th century edition of the complete works of Robert Burns that I got in Edinburgh when I was there. And I only paid like 10 pounds for it. It was a two book set. Granted, one of them was kind of falling apart, but they're absolutely gorgeous. And so I 100% understand Graham's excitement at this second edition Shakespeare folio. When they get to Cawdor Castle, this is probably one of the most hilarious things that happens in the entire book of Clanlands. The road trip that they did for Clanlands is different from the road trip that they did for Men and Kilts. I want to clarify that because there were actually two. They did the first one and that is the footage that they used to pitch the project to stars. Some of the original footage is still in the show. You do see it here and there. But for the most part, the footage that is used was from a second road trip that was filmed after stars purchased the rights to the show. In the first road trip, when they went to Cawdor Castle, the camper van that they were using for this particular road trip was much more of an eyesore. Graham refers to it as many things. Amongst this chapter in general where this event happens, he calls it the Fiat Turd, Fiat Colon, and Fiat Prostate. So this, if you have not read Clanlands, this is just one of the finer nuances of things that you miss when you get to Men in Kilts because I feel like Sam and Graham actually are pretty good writers and they have a way of writing their story that is absolutely hilarious and I would highly recommend the audible version because they read it as they meant it to sound versus how you interpret it and oh my gosh guys it's so funny but anyway Sam is a really bad driver okay especially with a stick shift 
And so somehow it was decided that he was going to drive for this whole road trip. And the camper van that they were using was much larger for the first road trip and much more ancient than the second road trip. And so as they're driving up to these old gates of Cawdor Castle, Graham starts looking at that and he's like, I don't think this van is going to fit through the gates. And he says as much to Sam and Sam's like, oh, of course it will. He's so optimistic. He's in denial about the whole thing. They drive up to the gate and the van won't fit. And this is like a one lane road with very little space to turn around. And as they're panicking and trying to figure out how they're going to get the camper van turned around, they look in the rearview mirror and coming down the road behind them is a marathon. There's a marathon going on that weekend and they literally have the camper van wedged into the gate with very little space to get in between the van and through the gate, which is part of the marathon course. All the marathon runners are just giving them the ugliest looks because I can imagine like marathoners are intense and they are very focused on their personal bests and their time. And you know, if you're running a long distance race, you want to make sure to keep a manageable pace and this pretty much threw in the towel on that idea. So I pulled a couple of quotes from this section. This first one's from Graham. He says, we go neither forward nor back, remaining in stasis as Sam waves encouragingly to the runners who wear expressions ranging from quiet disbelief to naked rage. (laughs) And so then in the next section, we get Sam's point of view where he says, I wish for the ground to swallow me up and try to slip down beneath the steering wheel, out of sight from the angry horde. Yes, we are those guys driving an oversized camper van, disrupting everyone's day in the most ridiculous way possible. And to top it all, we are dressed head to toe in tweed. We are tweedy wankers, not the dashing and refined fellows we had thought. Sam also goes on to be like, I just wanted to wave and encourage them and be like, I'm one of you. I know what it's like to run a marathon. Like, keep going. You're doing great. (laughs) Just being his optimistic self, but deep down, he's also like so humiliated. And then he says, as they go to turn around the camper van, it's like the scene from Austin Powers where they're turning and turning a 47 point turn to get this van turned around to go back down the road. I can just picture it. Like, honestly, it sounds like something that would happen to me. I'm going to come out in a minute right now. From there, I'm going to talk a little bit about the section of Men in Kilts that corresponds with Macbeth, which is their visit to Wormiston Castle. This was actually originally owned by relatives of the Macduffs that were in Shakespeare's version of Macbeth. The people that owned the castle after the Macduff relatives were the Lindsays, who actually owned the castle during the time of witchcraft in Scotland. And so from here, we talk a little bit about witchcraft. I thought it was cool that Shakespeare actually drew inspiration from the story of the three witches of Forest, which is a myth or legend or story that's very popular or very closely associated with Wormiston Castle. The man that's actually telling this story, the guide, his ancestor was actually burned as a witch, which I was like, oh my gosh, wow, the things that you can find out in your family history. And I know that that's a very American thing, I feel like, but I love digging into my ancestry and finding 
figuring out where I come from and the stories of the people that I originate from. But I'm also finding as I read more into clan lands and like men and kilts and all of that, that knowing where you come from is actually a very Scottish thing too. Wormiston Castle is very closely connected with witchcraft in Scotland. And so we talk a little bit here about the techniques that were used and how witchcraft trials worked back in the day. And I thought it was a unique distinction to talk about the fact that in England, witchcraft was viewed as a crime which was punishable by death or hanging. But in Scotland, witchcraft was considered heresy, and the fate for being convicted of heresy was burning. And I wonder what the difference is, I guess, why that distinction was made in the first place, and I'm probably not likely to ever find out why England was seeing it as sufficient to just hang the person if they were convicted of witchcraft, but in Scotland, they had to be burned on a pyre. (laughs) Ironically enough, people had to confess to witchcraft. They had to sign a document confessing to the fact that they practiced witchcraft. Hearing the stories of what was done to these people and how obviously most of the people that were convicted of this crime weren't actually guilty of it. It was one of those things that was hearsay. If you didn't like somebody, you went to somebody else and said, oh, I think that they practice witchcraft. And then it kind of snowballed. And when these people were taken into custody for practicing witchcraft, they were often tortured until they confessed to practicing whatever they were said to be guilty of. They did this through multiple methods that they kind of went into in the men and kilts. I particularly was interested in the idea of thumbscrews, which are these just two slates of metal that were connected by screws on either end. And you put the the person's thumb through and you screw them down until it eventually just smashes their fingers. And they're talking about how oftentimes people couldn't even sign their own confessions because their fingers were so destroyed by the torture that was used to extract that confession. And I just thought that was so horrific. And grandma's like, well, this is just horribly awful. (laughs) You know, like it is hearing the things that are done to people in the most inhumane fashion is so incredible. I hate to imagine that people were ever that cruel. And I know that things like that still happen today. But this was like a regular practice. I mean, we talk about here in the US, it was a few years later, I believe, than what was happening in the UK with the witch trials in England and Scotland. But we have the Salem witch trials here in the United States, which happened very near to Boston. And that's one of the most famous events in history here. It happened, I believe, in the 1600s. And yeah, it was just basically where person upon person was turned in by someone who didn't like that person for one reason or another. And a lot of people were convicted of witchcraft and contempt to burn or hang or what have you. It was a really horrible instance. And this is happening, like I said, a century or so behind what happened over in England and Scotland. Just super horrible stuff. A few facts about witchcraft that were provided to us in clan lands. Between 1563 and 1735 in Scotland, over 4,000 witches were brought to trial and two-thirds of them were executed. And this was four to five times more than the amount of quote-unquote witches were executed in England. The first Witchcraft Act of 1563 allowed the hunting, torturing, and execution of witches on a government-sanctioned 
and grand scale. This means that it wasn't like in Outlander when Claire and Galus were arrested in 1743 when they were taken under the control of the church as an ad hoc proceeding. The first Witchcraft Act of 1563 was only in effect until 1735, and this was government-approved execution of witches. Half of the victims that were convicted of witchcraft in Scotland were over the age of 40. Most of them were middle class. 4% of them practiced folk medicine and 15% of them were men. So the majority are women, uh, most of them over 40 and middle class. So that's kind of not a firm, here's who was convicted of witchcraft. Obviously, you're going to have your outliers, but that's the general outline of if you were one of those women over 40 that was middle class, you were more likely to be accused of and convicted of witchcraft. So witchcraft being what it is in Scotland, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about ghosts for a minute because the amount of Scottish ghost stories, man, let me just say I have my own Scottish ghost story. And I'll tell it to you here because I feel like this is a good place for it. So the very first time I went to Scotland, we stayed at an Airbnb on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. And the buildings are so old over there, okay? And they're not even the original buildings because the city was destroyed by fire so many times because the original structures over there were wooden. And they were originally like multiple stories high. We're talking like five, six, seven story high wooden structures. That's how many people were living on the Royal Mile at that point in time. And they would burn to the ground. And so what was left was the original stone structures underneath. And so eventually over time, you're talking two, three, four story buildings were built on the Royal Mile out of stone. And those are the structures that you see for the most part today. So we stayed in one of those buildings when we were there the first time. And I kid you not, guys, our Airbnb was haunted. (laughs) If you don't believe in ghosts, witchcraft, and superstition, obviously, this episode isn't for you. I do to some degree believe in that kind of thing. And so I find this sort of topic very interesting. And obviously from the story, you're going to get a pretty good idea of the fact that I also believe in ghosts. But yeah, I was laying in my bed. It was a two bedroom Airbnb. It was like a little two bedroom flat or apartment with a bathroom. And the hallway was shaped in an L. My bedroom was in the long part of the L across from the living room. My mom bedroom was in the short part of the L down the hall from the bathroom. And being an old building, it pops and it creaks and you hear it all the time, right? But it also means you can hear someone walking down the hall. And that in and of itself is not super disturbing. But I was laying in bed and I had my door closed and I hear pop, creak, pop, creak, pop, creak like someone is walking down the hallway and as the popping and creaking stops my door opens and I literally thought that my mom had walked down the hallway to say something to me and I rolled over to look at my door nobody is standing there and I hear my mom snoring in the room down the hall so I was so creeped out so, so creeped out. And then I tell my mom what happened the next morning. And she was like, oh, you're just imagining it. It's an old building. I'm sure that like when it popped or creaked, like your door just wasn't latched all the way and it came open, whatever. And I was like, 
yeah, okay, whatever, fine. I still believe it's haunted, but whatever. The next night, we have our windows open because obviously there's no air conditioning in Scotland because it doesn't ever really get hot enough to need air conditioning. And I am sitting in her room on the foot of her bed and we're just talking. She has her window open and we hear people talking in the courtyard down below in one of the closes. I kid you not, guys, it is a ghost tour talking about the ghosts in the building we are currently inhabiting. So I just want to clarify I had an experience. My mother said, whatever, you're imagining things. And then the next night, there's a ghost tour outside our window talking about our building. So for me, that just verified everything that I felt and experienced that day. But yes, that's my own little ghost story. Something else that I did, we actually went on a ghost tour or like a haunted Edinburgh tour. And we went into the underbelly of Edinburgh, which is a lot of little caves and stuff, the way that the city is built, it's built on an ancient volcano. And that is why the Royal Mile sits up higher than the rest of Edinburgh. And then there are valleys on either side of the Royal Mile that at one point in time used to be locks. But people used to dump their chamber pots and stuff out their windows. And obviously it would all run downhill into these locks. And it just created these huge stinking cesspools. So eventually the locks were drained and Waverly Station now sits in one of those valleys. The other is now part of the city, but there were bridges that were built and there were archways in these bridges. Well, as the city was built up and as engineers kind of created the modern city around which we can walk today, they built over these bridges and it created these caves and caverns that you can walk around in. It's really catacombs is what it is. And to find out that people used to live down there because they couldn't afford to live above ground, it was really a miserable place to be. And it was very sad and creepy. It had a very heavy air down there. But all of that being said, we did that at the beginning of our tour and then came back up to the surface. And then we went around the corner, down the hill, up the stairs, whatever, and went to Greyfriars. And this was my first experience being in Greyfriars. I'd heard stories about Greyfriars. It actually reminded me a little bit of the above ground cemeteries you can see in New Orleans in the United States. That was the closest thing that I had to compare it to, but it's all of these really ornate tombs and gravestones, and it's just absolutely ancient, and you could spend hours walking around. We obviously were there in the dark, so we couldn't really see it very well, and so my mom and I, on this last trip to Scotland, went back to Greyfriars and actually walked around a little bit, and we found some of the gravestones that are rumored to have inspired names of characters in the Harry Potter series, like Alistair Moody and... Tom Riddle and all kinds of things like that. You can find these names in the cemetery. And if you take a Harry Potter tour, they'll actually take you to Greyfriars and point them out. We saw so many Harry Potter tours, (laughs) y'all. It was kind of crazy. But Sam and Graham actually visit Greyfriars as well. And one of the things that they touch pretty heavily on in the Greyfriars area is the Covenanters prison, which is a crazy crazy place. It is a stone courtyard that's 
fenced in with a gate that locks. And nowadays there are tombs. I'm not sure that back in the 1600s when the Covenanters were actually a thing and they were imprisoned there, I don't think that those tombs existed yet, but I could totally be wrong. The whole story behind the Covenanters is that when Charles I took over Scotland, he brought with him Episcopalianism. And as you know, if you've read Outlander or researched Scotland at all, Presbyterianism is the primary Christian religion in Scotland. And it was that way even in the 1600s. People were very unhappy with Charles I for trying to bring in this new prayer book and this idea of Episcopalianism. So they wrote the Scottish Covenant, which the lady summed it up really well that was doing this episode of Men in Kilts. She said, it basically said, hey, we're loyal subjects of the king. We're not threatening to rise up against him. We just want him to not go so hard on the Episcopalianism, right? We just want to be able to practice as God-fearing Presbyterians. And that's all we're asking. They did not take kindly to this. King Charles did not take kindly to this. Every single person that signed that covenant was imprisoned at Greyfriars in the Covenanters prison. Over a thousand people in total. And they were given one penny loaf of bread a day. That was their ration. They were exposed to the elements for the entire Scottish winter. And when all of it was said and done, there were only like 300 of them that survived. What we were told on our tour was that a lot of them were actually killed outright. They survived the whole winter and then they were killed by the guards. That part wasn't mentioned in Men and Kilts. So again, I'm not entirely sure which of the stories is correct. I lean towards what's on Men and Kilts because that is verifiable. Like she wouldn't say it on national television if it wasn't true, I feel like, but I could be wrong. Within the Covenanters prison, which I actually did get to go inside as part of our tour is the Black Mausoleum. And guys, this place is the creepiest place I have ever been. I mean, you're talking about a girl who at the time that she visited the Black Mausoleum had just walked through the catacombs of Edinburgh in the pitch black with only a flashlight. Okay. And the Black Mausoleum freaked me the hell out, like borderline anxiety attack. I'm not claustrophobic. I'm not afraid of the dark. And I was panicking. Okay. I looked at my mother and I said, I do not want to go in there. And she's like, oh, you're being a baby. I said, no, I have a bad feeling. I do not want to go in there. And of course she made me go in there. Nothing bad happened to anybody that I'm aware of when we went in there, but it's just a terrible vibe. I don't even know how to describe it. It's just heavy and foreboding. Like you just don't want to be in there. I heard the exact same story that was described in Men in Kilts, which is that a homeless man found his way into the grave of this man in Greyfriars that had committed several atrocities to humankind and was not a good man. And so he was supposedly cursed to never be able to settle into peace in the afterlife. Um, he was doomed to unrest for all eternity for these crimes that he committed. So somehow this homeless man found a grate covering the stairs that led down to the tomb. And because it was cold and he didn't have anywhere else to go, he went down there and then up back topside, the groundskeeper and his little dog were walking the grounds to make sure everything was, you know, on the up and up. And he hears a sound coming from this tomb that was most likely the homeless man, but he didn't know it was a homeless man. So as he is investigating the sound, he falls through the wooden flooring in the tomb. And I believe both of them were okay, but it's said that all of this action 
version of what the homeless man did and what the groundskeeper had happened to him, it set loose whatever was doomed to curse this man that was buried here and that it went into the Black Mausoleum and that is what resides there to this day. And, you know, obviously it sounds like a bunch of superstition. It's a hell of a ghost story when it's told correctly because, like I said, this is the exact same story that I heard. But nevertheless, people supposedly get scratched here, have experiences, lose consciousness, feel touched, feel unwelcome, that sort of thing, which having been there myself can completely 100% confirm the unwelcome feeling that you feel there. But yeah, so if you believe in ghosts, if you like that sort of thing, and you're planning on going to Scotland, I do recommend going on a underground tour of Edinburgh. It's very enlightening. I can't remember which tour we took. If I can find the information, I will post it. But I did like it because it focused a lot on the history of the city as well as some of the darker aspects of it. And the ghost aspect of it was kind of the underbelly of it versus learning about Edinburgh's dark past and the things that were done there and the things that happened there. So I like that kind of thing. I'm not out for the the thrills and to be scared shitless. That is not why I do those things. I just like the history of it. So talking about ghosts, Sam and Graham actually visited Castle Loud, which is the home of the McKenzie clan. It's the clan seat. There are a couple of famous ghosts that reside there, and these stories are told in clan lands. The first is the Night Watchman, which mostly manifests with footsteps, but you know it's the Night Watchman because you can hear him going up the spiral staircase of the guard tower, which is now bricked over. So it is physically impossible for anyone to be walking around in there unless they can go through walls. So the Night Watchman is actually like a verifiable occurrence because apparently he manifested in front of an entire room full of Spanish tourists while they were at a recital there at Castle Loud. And many of them were very disturbed, which I can imagine completely. So that was crazy. And then the second ghost story that was told about Castle Loud, John McKenzie, who was giving Sam and Graham the tour of the castle, was telling a story about hanging a set of paintings one day. He said a pair of hands pushed him off of his ladder. And when he looked up at the painting he had been hanging, there was a huge diagonal tear through it. It was still hanging on the wall, but it had a huge tear through it. And so I believe it was a set of three paintings. It was two women and a man, I believe. And yeah, apparently whoever it was did not want him hanging those paintings. And I thought that was super crazy. Like, I mean, at least nothing happened to him, but geez, oh, Pete, that would be scary. So now we move on to a semi-outlander related portion of witchcraft and superstition, which is the idea of standing stones. They visit the Kalanish stones on the Isle of Lewis in Men and Kilts. And this is on my list. I visited a couple of the islands the last time I was in Scotland, but Lewis and Harris are at the top of my list and the Kalanish stones are on the Isle of Lewis. These are the stones that casts were taken of them and these are the stones that make up Craig Nadoon in Outlander. So they're super cool stones. The stone circle was approximately built in 2900 BC. So they're like 5,000 years old. The stone that composes the Kalanish stones was quarried a mile and a half away. So there are so many questions regarding stone circles and these huge monoliths like Stonehenge. How do they get the stones 
from where they're quarried to the stone circle location? And then how do they get them to stand up? I watched a interesting documentary on Stonehenge that was on Disney Plus. It was a National Geographic documentary. And it kind of goes into detail on how engineering speaking, they could have gotten the stones from point A to point B and kind of built them up, how they keep them standing, etc. It's very interesting. So I recommend it if you are interested in finding out more information on it. But there's a lot of speculation around why the stone circles exist. Was it just for pagan festivals like sun and fire feasts? Was it built for worship of the sun and moon and recognizing the phases of the sun and the moon? Nobody really knows for certain. Obviously, this was before written records were really in effect. And so we only have what archaeologists can gather based on what's left behind. And I thought it was interesting that Sam said if he could travel back in time, he thought it would be really cool to travel back to a time when these stone circles were being set, see how they did it and why they did it and what the mood and atmosphere of the people was like when they were doing whatever these stone circles were put there to do, whether it was appreciation of the sun sun rising or the moon rising. He said that there's actually some evidence that they were based on the phases of the moon because once every 18 years when the moon rises, certain stones line up with it directly. I haven't, like I said, visited the Kalanish stones, but I have visited Clava Cairns and that's kind of the same vibe you get. I really kind of do personally feel like it's somehow related to the sun and the moon because in Clava Cairns, you find that these burial mounds and these standing stones that are situated in Clava Cairns are placed at certain points to line up with the rising or the setting of the sun at certain times of year for certain ritual purposes. The evidence speaks to it having something to do with celestial movement, and you can't have so many different happenstances of structures lining up with the sun or the moon in some way and not draw the conclusion that it had something to do with that on a grand scale. I'm not saying that was the only purpose of them being there, but it certainly alludes to the fact that that was part of the reason they were built the way that they were. So we'll end this conversation the way that the Men in Kilts episode ends, which is with the Feast of Beltane, which I will be honest, I didn't know that this was still a common occurrence in Scotland. And, you know, the way that you read it and watch it in Outlander, it feels like it's one of these things that's kept super quiet and only a few people know about them and they kind of do it in secret. This looks like, from the way that Sam talks, it was something that was kind of known about. And you could go, even if you didn't spiritually believe in Beltane and didn't have that pagan tendency, but it was really just a way to party and have a good time as well. And that there were always people of both beliefs there. Whether they believed in it or not, it was a mix of people just really celebrating fertility in the season of life and everything, which I thought was really cool. I feel like that's something that I could get behind, just connecting to the earth. I don't really consider myself to have pagan beliefs or like my grandpa would call it hippie belief, but I do feel like I could get behind really connecting to the earth in that way and appreciating this new season of growth and life 
life and fertility because it happens on April 30th into May 1st, which really is this season of the flowers blooming and species of birds migrating back to their summer destinations and all of that stuff. So I really do see where that became a thing. And I really do. I liked that they brought that into Men and Kilts and I appreciated the visual of it, like all the fire and the headdresses and all the flowers and the dancing and stuff. It, it just looked like a good time. So I was kind of glad that they went through the trouble of reenacting it, as it were. I didn't know if it was one of those things that people that actually have those beliefs and celebrate those holidays for real, I didn't know if it was one of those things that they would kind of be offended at or not. I hope not, because I really do feel like they just did it for educational purposes so that we could really see that portion of the Celtic culture and the Scottish culture. That wraps up my thoughts on Men in Kilts episode four, Witchcraft and Superstition. My witty one-liner of the week is not really that witty, more so just freaking hilarious, was when Graham at the very beginning of this episode says, you know, I would really like to not feel like I'm almost having a heart attack every second of this episode, if that's all right with you. And Sam's like, yeah, totally. And then literally not 10 seconds later, he goes, oh my God, as they're driving down the road and scares the bejesus out of Graham. And I really just in that moment felt like that is something my brother would do so solidly that I just, yes, I was like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah. Sam is such a child sometimes. And Graham repeatedly says this in Clanlands. He's like, he's such a child. He's like an eight-year-old in a 40-year-old's body. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and so the shenanigans of the week was hands down the credits event where they are reenacting Jamie and Claire with Jamie sending Claire back through the stones at the end of Dragonfly and Amber. Sam as Claire, Graham as Jamie. And Sam's like, please, Jamie, don't send me back through the stones you're so handsome and I don't want to go (laughs) oh my god this episode had a lot of laughs and I was here for it for sure I've had a rough week I actually broke my wrist yesterday so I needed the laughs and I was very happy to take a break from life for a minute to do this because I love this episode so much so that is my wrap on men and kilts episode four As far as Outlander news, we did get a big slice this week. So Outlander season seven is wrapped. They are done filming. And now it is all up to post to get that stuff done and hand it to us on a silver platter so we can enjoy it for ourselves. I'm really excited. I really am kind of leaning towards a June release date now that we have the opening credits and we know season seven is wrapped. So I am going to be releasing my live that I did on the season seven credits probably within the next three weeks or so. The plan is to release it after my next edition of Droughtlander Book Club before I pick back up with Men and kilts again. So I will have a break next week. No new podcast as I prep for Droughtlander Book Club, which will be March 11th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. That book club will be on The Broken Brooch by Catherine Lowry Logan. That is the fifth book in the Celtic Brooch series. And yes, if you are thinking about joining me, I would love to have you, but you probably do need to read these books in order because each book builds on the last and all the characters 
are recurring. So the characters that we get in the first few books become part of the family, as it were, as the series progresses on. Like I said, I would love to have you. That will be on TSF Obsassinax, my private Facebook group at 2 p.m. Eastern time on March 11th. And if you are not a member already, make sure that you get your request in to join the group at least an hour before we go live. Otherwise, I can't guarantee that your request will be approved before the event. If you can't join live, no big deal. It will be posted probably sometime the following week as a podcast for you to enjoy at your leisure. With all of that out of the way, I'm going to hop off of here for this week. Have a great few weeks, everybody, and I will chat at you later. <music>